Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're talking about the film 37 Seconds, directed by Japanese-American filmmaker Hikari, which follows Yuma, a young woman and manga artist with cerebral palsy who lives with her overprotective mother in Tokyo. The film stars Mei Kayama, an amateur actress who has cerebral palsy as Yuma, and screened at the Berlin Film Festival last year. Um, This film is now available on Netflix, which is very convenient for us all. Um, And this episode was sponsored via Patreon by a very generous patron named Thomas. So thank you, Thomas. I had not heard of this movie before Thomas asked that we watch it. It was well-received at Berlin and won a prize there, but I don't think screened at other festivals. It might have been in Toronto. And this strikes me as an example of a thing that Netflix does sometimes, which is buy up international films in other languages that are not English and uh, not promote them at all. And then they just vanish which seems to have been what happened here. It didn't win the audience award at Berlin, but it won a audience award. So that means that people liked it. And then it just never appeared. Yeah, it kind of dematerialized. It sunk into the uh, the Netflix abyss. Which is too bad. Um, I had some problems with this movie, which we'll discuss, but in general, I enjoyed it. and found it really interesting. So I think it's kind of too bad that it did not receive more coverage. Yeah, I think it was kind of satisfyingly unusual in some elements and in some other elements, it was a bit like, hmm, maybe the opposite of that. Yeah, so I think it will be interesting for us to talk about and I'm glad for the um, chance to do so on our little platform. We should start by giving some background as we do on the filmmaker. So she is called Hikari. Her name, her birth name is Mitsuyo Miyazaki. And she was born and raised in Japan, but she has mostly lived in America as an adult. I don't know if she would identify as Japanese American, but that seemed like the most accurate way to characterize her for the purposes of our little intro, because she spent so much time here and works sort of within the US. familiar with the American film industry. So she's not working, even though this film is like set in Japan. Um, and apparently it was written in English originally, Morgan, which I was not aware of. Yeah, so she went to college here. She went to film school at USC. And this film was developed through the Sundance Institute, which runs lots of sort of workshops and does grants for developing filmmakers. And like you submit a screenplay and then you do all these workshops through them. And you get mentored by people. And so she was mentored by Catherine Hardwick, who made Twilight, which I thought was kind of funny and great. And then she also, I think, got a grant for development through Film Independent, which runs the Spirit Awards, which does a similar kind of thing. So this movie definitely sort of came into being originally through the American independent film system, which is kind of interesting, which I didn't know when I was watching it and it wouldn't have occurred to me. But um, that's kind of the background. And because that was the background, she wrote it in English, because obviously she's working with all these other people and filmmakers who are English-speaking Americans. But then she wound up making it in Japan and had to translate it in like a week, it said in one of the interviews. So this was like rapid process of translation to get get it ready to make over there. And I guess there was some trouble securing funding originally because she was very insistent that the actor who played the central character be not a big movie star, but someone who has cerebral palsy, which was a great relief to me watching it because I would have been distressed if the alternative had been the case. Yes. As so often happens primarily in 
bigger films, but also across the TV industry. I know recently there has been more pressure in UK television to cast more disabled actors, and I think that has been somewhat successful, partly due to uh, Jack Thorne, who neither of us like very much as a screenwriter, but he is, in fact, Britain's premier uh, advocate for disability representation in British television. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that he's contributing in a positive way. And in a lot of the interviews that I read, she talked about specifically this film in an Asian context and the fact that disability is something that isn't talked about very much in Asia and specifically sort of sexuality around disability. This is not something that I obviously am very well versed in, but um, a quote from her just gives some context before we get into the sort of nitty gritty of the film. She says, disability is still taboo in much of Asia. I wanted to show that the disabled can pursue their lives in different ways. The same as all able-bodied people, which I think is definitely sort of the goal of this movie. Um, Although I think it sort of doesn't always succeed in that goal, maybe. I mean, something I found interesting while, while kind of reading a couple of reviews afterwards was that there was like a fair amount of conversation kind of highlighting Japan specifically as a place where essentially it was like being framed as like it's harder to be disabled in Japan than it is in America. And like, I have absolutely no way of like being able to judge whether that's true and what that means. But that was kind of the conversation that was happening both from people who made this film and like in the film criticism. And but while I was watching the movie, what I was thinking for a lot of kind of the first third while I was getting into the film was just thinking, wow, Tokyo is like so much more accessible than Britain or America, like in terms of as, as in the urban landscape. I was thinking that also, yeah. Like you cannot like use a wheelchair on a lot of British and American pavements or use the subway. Well, and then you wonder, like, I've never been to Tokyo, so I have no way of knowing... Well, what I wonder, and maybe some of our listeners can tell us, is the degree to which they have picked locations where that is the case. Because obviously she's only going to be able to go there. Or whether that really is the case in all or most of Tokyo in terms of like wheelchair access, right? I have no idea. But it may be that the film just kind of elides some of those difficulties, which it certainly does in some other areas, which we will get to a bit later. I mean, certainly in America, this stuff is not talked about very much. Disabled people are discriminated against constantly. Uh, In New York, subway access is unbelievably difficult for people with physical mobility issues. Like, there are just no elevators, like, anywhere. It's illegal, actually, the fact that there are so few elevators. They just don't build them, and then you can't get out of the subway. So it's not that we live in any kind of great place. Um, but I thought it was interesting that she, as someone who has lived in both places, was talking about the, that attitude in Asia so much because I don't have any context for that. and was like, oh, yeah. clearly this is something that she really was interested in addressing. But just as a viewer, there was a lot about the way the character was portrayed in this movie that I did quite in- like. It's just so rare to see a depiction of a disabled person in a movie period at all and especially a non-famous disabled person who is just like going about her day-to-day life like obviously there's a lot of drama in this movie because it's a fictional story and that's how stories work but she's just a person who's doing stuff yeah as opposed to like Stephen Hawking which is the sort of person these stories normally wind up being about you know which felt really really refreshing to me 
in a huge way, especially because the actress actually has cerebral palsy and isn't Eddie Redmayne. Yeah, it starts off with your sort of classic establishing sequence of like, you see what her life is like. So she lives with her mother, who's obviously, you know, like in her 60s or something, and like helps her with her day-to-day life. Uh, She works as a manga artist for like this other young woman who you very quickly figure out is basically exploiting her. Like she's described as being the assistant. So kind of partly the personal assistant, but mostly the artistic assistant of this girl who is clearly like she's kind of an influencer so like she's like a celebrity artist who's got like an online platform and is kind of cute and is very clearly sort of cultivating this adorable cutesy persona while covering up the fact that the main character is doing all or most of her art so she's not actually the artist and this is like, I was like, within the first like half hour of this movie, I was like, wow, I hate this woman. Like, I hated her like so fucking much. But she really is just this like probably quite average, venal, nasty person who's exploiting a uh, no doubt underpaid worker and stealing her art. And um, Yuma is like, she's quite forgiving and she's very like smiley. And I thought it was like an interesting depiction of, especially like a woman, but like a person in general who like, their response to a lot of situations is to smile and like obviously you see kind of the everyday like annoyances and like microaggressions she experiences but also it's very much kind of in the framework of just like a typical kind of coming of age story once she kind of figures out that she can't keep working for this woman anymore uh she decides that she's gonna submit some art to like a porn magazine just because she coincidentally like stumbles across some porn magazines so she goes for a meeting at this office with this like very friendly sort of older female editor of this porn magazine with like some art samples and the editor gives her the kind of advice which i was like oh my god but her advice is that you just won't be able to make this art authentic until you've had sex and i was like well this is terrible advice and I don't agree with it but it ends up being sort of proven correct in a way and this scene is sort of like quite a positive piece of advice for this girl in this specific situation because Yuma then kind of goes on to this journey of self-discovery and like I did actually kind of think it was going to be a sex movie because like obviously what she does next is she goes and tries to find someone to like date slash sleep with but it actually becomes this is just like the first step on a rather more complicated journey to do with like her relationship with her mother and like her sense of independence and her career and her family history and stuff well apparently the original story was going to be i'm quoting from an interview here a love story but also a story about sexual awakening and living an independent life and then as a result of casting so hikari the director i read a number of interviews with her that made me like the film slightly less than I had when I watched it, which sometimes happens. And you just think, like, maybe you should not Just don't talk about your art. (laughs) (laughs) The main actor, Mei Kayama, does look quite young. And she speaks very softly, clearly as a result of her condition. Like, this is just how she talks. And she is playing a 23-year-old in this movie, which is discussed in the movie, that she is an adult and her mother is infantilizing And that's part of the problem is that she's not been able to live an independent life because her mother is so controlling and paranoid. And I think the movie does a pretty good job making you understand that this is not a tenable situation and that her mother is really not behaving in the right way for her daughter, but also that you kind of get why this has happened, even if you don't 
agree. Her mother's clearly just terrified of something happening to her child, and she's had to take care of her in an unusual way because of her physical disability. And again, like she does some stuff, especially in the second half, that it really is not good, but I felt like it was handled in a pretty smart way where you're not, she wasn't like a demon mother, you know? She felt like a human person. Yeah. But the film itself, it seemed to me, was kind of infantilizing this character a little bit also, even though the point of the movie is that she's been infantilized. And we can talk more about the sex stuff, which I do think is generally handled quite well and part of what is interesting about the movie. But apparently the film was originally a love story. And then this quote says, I went into casting with my mind completely open because I had no idea who I would meet. And when I found May, she was just a surprise. She was nothing like I had imagined. She looked so innocent and so young, too. I was like, it was, it's a sex story. Does it work with her? She looks like she's 15 years old. But after I was talking to her and seeing what she could do, I thought she definitely had the part. And then she reshaped the story and I guess took out the love element, although it's kind Even of- Even though like there is like sexual content in the story and also the actress was fully nude in like the opening scenes in like a non-sexual context. But also I can't remember if we mentioned this up at the top of the episode- this actor who is in her 20s is a social worker. Right. This is this is like a grown-up and like the way that this is being framed by the director is mm. well, it's the, it, there's there's more. So oh, there's no. another oh, interview. No. She says the story originally is a, was about a girl that is paralyzed and how she tries to find her in the society. I guess there must be a typo there. But then I met Mei Kayama who was not paralyzed but stricken by cerebral palsy. I thought of her as a little baby. She was 23 years old no. at the time, but she looked 13. There was something about her that made me feel like I wanted to hug her, protect her. No. During the auditions, however, I realized I wasn't actually protecting her, but that she was trying to tell me something else. That power, the energy that she created at the moment, her pureness, innocence. I just wanted to put all that in the movie because the girl has to go through all the problems and illustrate them in the movie from scratch. So I wanted to see how it was going to work in a two-hour movie, from nothing to actually something. And then there's a scene where the mom quotes Shakespeare at the daughter, and the daughter's not really interested. And she explains that the point is that the character is a child and doesn't care about Shakespeare. No! And I was like, what is this? No like, element. Oh my god, that is that is a terrible quote, Morgan. That's it's, appalling. It's bad. <laughs> it's really bad. Oh, that is she not She literally the kind says... Of- I never thought I would be able to make a movie about a disabled child with cerebral palsy and then get out of the blue, I get this budget for it and it goes to Berlin and gets awarded there. It's unbelievable. She's 23! She's 23 years old! But also, not only that, while I I didn't think this was like a perfect film, that is not really what I got from the movie either. Like the movie, it, it, there were some issues, but it doesn't feel like that level of just like offensive disrespect towards the lead actor. Like it's pretty mature film. And the whole point is that she's an adult. I don't think the movie is as bad as those quotes at all. No, I was the shocked quotes are that. illuminatingly troubling. <laughs> Which this is again, the thing, maybe sometimes you just shouldn't give interviews. I've had this experience with other directors too, where sometimes you're just like, mm, I wish I had not heard you say that. Cause... I just hope that, you know, the actress's experience and memories of this are positive. Yeah. And not reflected in whatever that was. But I do feel like, and part of this is just that the setup is quite tricky, right? Because the character has, is quite sexually inexperienced and naive. And 
that's not necessarily a problem. Like, I mean, it's, it's a classic you know, theme. Right, you of know. course. And you understand why her mother has really kept things from her. And so then when you have a character who's in that situation, then have start having sexual experiences or become interested in sex, that's tricky to depict in a way that sort of works. And I think the movie mostly does it pretty well. But I just felt watching it like there was some way about how she was shooting her that just felt a little bit like, oh, look at this like little girl. And like she doesn't ever have sex in the movie, which I don't think is a problem. But I think it kind of feeds into that attitude of the quotes that I just read, which is that the movie can't quite grapple with her in that context. Like it almost gets there, but not quite. Well, I mean, the way in the context of the film, I was like, you don't need to have the character have sex because that's like a very, that's like the predictable ending to the initial problem. And the whole point of the story is that like it develops beyond that. And she's like maturing as a person and she will at some point, you know, be in a relationship. But in the context of those interviews, it now very much is clear that she was like, oh, I don't want to put this actress in the position of doing a sex scene because I'm like viewing her as younger than she is. Right. Which is And weird. I don't think like this character, Yuma, like the advice from the editor that's like, you have to have sex to be able to write this is obviously absurd. It's also very funny in the context of yes. like manga porn because it's like, this is just a bunch of like 30 year old man living in his basement right. sort of is the stereotype of who's drawing the art. None of them are going in like fucking some cartoon girl with like magical tits, you know? <laughs> yes. And she becomes really obsessed with like, okay, I have to do this to the point where she winds up in kind of the red light district of Tokyo and through this situation, hires this male sex worker. And that scene, I thought, was really well done. It does yeah. not go well, as you would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's very awkward. And I don't think the message of, like, obviously, she must have sex to become an adult. Like, clearly not. But it just felt like the movie just sort of didn't know where it was going, in a way. Sort of midway through, right? Like, I think the... It does a lot of kind of interesting things with her interest in sexuality and not quite knowing how to deal with it and obviously feeling like she's undesirable but wanting to do something about that, even if some of the way it was shot, as I said, irked me a little bit. And then something else happens in the last chunk of the movie, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast, that is like a totally different plot that I thought was like bad. I like this movie with reservations. And then the last chunk, I was like, yeah, no, we will discuss no, no. that. <laughs> so it just felt like there was almost too much going on and it wasn't totally thought through. But I also think, I mean, this is the danger of approaching film as like a director's only medium, right? The actress in this case is really, really good in this movie. And she's making a contribution to the film also. And so obviously the director's the person who's making the decisions about the edits and whatever, but I think that the actress definitely is a sort of co-author of this film. And so even though the director's quotes uh, alarmed me significantly, I still think there's value in the movie in large part because this actress who has had the experience of living with cerebral palsy brings a lot to this film 
in a way that like most movies don't get anywhere near anything like this, yeah. you know. And it does also seem, I mean, clearly the film did, like changed a lot, but it does also seem like the kind of movie that has the flexibility to change with input from the actor as well as being made. Yeah. And I think the supporting cast is really good too. Um, her mother yes. is played by an actress named Mizuza Kano, and she's really good. That's part of how that relationship sort of works in a way where you're not just like, this woman is a monster, is that that actress is really good. And then there's Yuma sort of is befriended by this older woman who's a sex worker who kind of is a maternal figure for her, who's played by an actress called Mikiko Watanabe, who is great. Like, you just want this woman to adopt you. Like, she was so She's lovely. And it's also like, it's a really tricky kind of role, right? Because you have to like, believe this person would just befriend and help this like total stranger like in the middle of the red light district. And I was watching it. And I was like, I 100% accept this. Yes. I can imagine this scenario happening. A lot of that is because it's like an older woman. So like the implication is that this woman has seen some shit and she's probably had like about 50 other people under her wing over the years who she's like helped run away from home or whatever. But she has like a sidekick who's like her driver because this sex worker like specializes in disabled patrons and she has a driver who helps her with like her van and then uh he also becomes like a key character in the final third of the film yeah i also thought to go back to the sort of friend slash employer it's never made exactly clear what the original relationship was the sort of youtube manga artist star person i mean they're young enough that it kind of felt like maybe they met in school or something yeah and the parents clearly know each other yeah but that character doesn't have a lot of stuff on the page, I would imagine. Like, I don't think she probably had a lot in the screenplay. But she felt so realistic to me as just, like, this monstrous <laughs> it was like, young woman. <laughs> oh, to me too. I was, like, this just into the garbage. And she doesn't have a lot of shades of nuance, right? Like, she's just horrible. But for some reason, watching it, I never felt like oh, this is such a caricature. Even though she literally often is dressed up, you know, like a Japanese YouTube star. And I thought that for the most part, with one exception that we will discuss shortly, the secondary characters, even though I think probably the way they were written on the page is pretty two-dimensional, the actors and or the director, however the combination of input worked, just did a really good job making them feel real enough that you just believe it and go along with it. And it feels like, okay, this is this young woman's world and these are the people she's sort of interacting with, which I think helped the movie a lot because if they all felt really cardboard, then even if the lead actress is good, then that's sort of an impediment to the rest of the film. So we're going to talk about the last sort of chunk of the movie now. There will be spoilers. It's not really plot stuff for the first two thirds or three quarters really i mean things happen but it's not like plot in a traditional sense really and then it goes there and in my opinion gets bad so the first part of the movie that we've been talking about i had some reservations but mostly liked it and just like appreciated that it was about subject matter that movies do not usually tackle and i thought the acting was really good and then (laughs) So she's living alone with her mother, this woman, and the dad's not there. She runs away from home because her mother's become too overbearing and she finds her stash of like sex stuff under her bed. 
and freaks out. And she goes and stays with the man who drives the van, who's sort of young and attractive, who is the one supporting character in this movie who just makes no sense. I mean, he just reminds me of when there's like a really thinly written Netflix teen rom-com where like the purpose of the love interest is just to be a cute boy who like is perfect. Yeah. He has no personality traits except that he's nice and non-threatening, basically. And yeah. apparently has and money. And he drops literally everything to help her, which yeah. is like, once we got to the final third, I didn't dislike it as much as Morgan, but I was just like, the film is so explicitly like really realistic in terms of tone and subject matter. It's just very straightforwardly like, here is a drama about what happens in real life. And like, you expect the story to have a happy ending, which it does. But like the final third is like really unrealistic in a way that wasn't really necessary. So what happens next is like once she goes to meet her father, she actually ends up meeting her uncle instead and finding out that her father is dead. But she also finds out that she has a long lost twin sister. And so she's then like, I have to meet my long lost twin sister who lives in Thailand. So she and this driver go to Thailand to like physically track down this sister instead of like phoning her or Skyping her. So like the implication is that they hadn't even like called ahead to be like, hi, they like physically show up at this rural primary school where the sister works. And then they have a reunion, which is obviously awkward for many reasons. And that's kind of essentially the end of the film. Like she goes back and reunites with her mother and sort of they both agree that the mother has been too overbearing and what have you. But like while I was watching this, I was just like, okay, obviously like the whole thing is about her being independent and stuff. And it's like, that is what is happening here. But I'm like, how is she affording to go to Thailand? Because it's like the whole movie, she's like, she seems to have like this bottomless well of cash to go everywhere. But also this guy, like the driver, drops everything. He like presumably has a secondary day job as well. Like he's he's got like a full-time job. He's not like a rich guy. He's like a guy in his twenties working in Tokyo in like a not very good job. Abandons all this for a girl who he's like just met and then they go to Thailand together and he's like helping her get around Thailand. But like that only works if you've given us like a whirlwind romance or like showing that there's like a real meeting of the minds and that he has a real reason to like be that engaged. And it's like he doesn't and it doesn't really make sense like logistically or emotionally for that to be happening. So it's like, why are we in Thailand now? And then the film ends. Yeah, I mean, it for him to take her to see the dad who turns out to be the uncle is like, sure, day trip, fine. Yeah. When when all of a sudden the film cuts to them in Thailand, I was like... For like multiple days, because they're traveling what? like across Thailand on trains. He's like navigating for her. They're like staying in hotels. It's big. Totally absurd. Just like, what the fuck? Again, we have the internet now. So, I mean, I would certainly get why you would want to meet in person. But like, it just doesn't make any sense yeah. because and- like it works in a film where like the first two thirds of the movie have trained you to suspend disbelief like if it's if you're watching like Mamma Mia right. going to Thailand with someone you've just met is like makes perfect sense but if you're watching what is very clearly like a realistic drama that's meant to be teaching you about someone's daily life it's like what has happened at this end and it kind of detracts from the fact that you do get a happy ending because like you can have a happy ending in this context in like a realistic way rather than adding this whole other element to the film in the final third. Well, right. And the first two thirds are so concerned with her life 
in a very realistic, practical way. And this sort of sexual journey or non-journey that she's going on. And then to introduce the family stuff. I mean, obviously her mother has been there the whole time. But this completely separate element of like, by the way, you have a secret sister. (laughs) Like, it just doesn't. It's not necessary. It doesn't add anything to the movie. And there's also, so her sister does not have cerebral palsy. And she winds up saying to her, the sister says to Yuma, as they're leaving, that she had known about her all the time, but didn't want to meet her because she knew that she was disabled. And then, like, cries, and Yuma forgives her. And this forgives like, her like immediately. And I was like, "Wow, you're very forgiving." <laughs> and it's this like Christ-like tableau of the sister kind of crying on her shoulder, and Yuma forgiving her in this completely saintly yeah, way. which is something you often see, like not just in films about disability, but films. Like, I guess what you might describe as like struggle movies, like movies that are about like why someone is oppressed by society in one way or another. And like, if the film is made by someone who isn't from that background, often there'll be like a scene where a privileged person is absolved by like the holy forgiveness, which is kind of what happened there. And I was like, why? And also yikes. That whole thing kind of colors the rest of the movie for me, even though again, I do on the whole like the first portion and would recommend this to people who are interested in this subject matter or perhaps just want to broaden their minds. But it made me feel a little queasy about the whole thing because not that I need this young woman to be like an anti-hero, like super flawed and gritty, but throughout the movie, she basically is just really like nice to everyone really nice apart and, from one fight with her mother yeah and everyone else is either suddenly incredibly nice to her without much explanation or really mean to her and at the end she triumphs because she's a good person and it just felt like clearly the movie is coming from a place of good intention even if, as the quotes we read suggest, the director maybe doesn't totally get it. Like, she obviously wants to be doing something that is reflecting a problem in society that she's perceived, right? And she wants to be depicting this woman in, like, a positive and thoughtful way. But I just felt like the movie didn't quite get there, which was kind of disappointing. And if that last chunk of the movie had just kind of been excised and instead there had been more stuff like local stuff in Tokyo with her interpersonal relationships with her friends and her mom. I just think that would have been so much better. And instead it was like, let's have a Victorian novel plot twist where there's like a secret family and you're going to go to a different country. It was like, but why? That being said, this is a film about a physically disabled person by starring someone who has that handicap, as we've now mentioned several times, which is unbelievably uncommon. I was kind of looking through lists of um, movies about people in wheelchairs specifically, just because I didn't have the bandwidth to go through like every various kind of disability. And it really is like able-bodied actors playing famous people in biopics designed for Oscars is like the biggest category of this, which uh, 
it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> I mean, the one that comes to mind immediately is Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot, which was like 30 years ago. And at the time, I think was received by many people in a very positive way because there was very little representation of disabled people at all. So like, I'm sure it's aged in a kind of questionable way. I've never seen it. But like, that feels different to me than something like, I don't know, Andrew Garfield in Andy Serkis's movie Breathe from a couple years ago, which like, nope, nope. Um, Brian Cranston did a movie like this. Obviously, Eddie Redmayne won an Oscar for the Stephen Hawking movie, although that spans his whole life, which is a bit different. Like I, that movie, the problem with that movie is more that it's boring and bad. Like I don't see how it would have been very difficult did, to do that. Did film. Brian Cranston do that movie after Breaking Bad? Oh yeah. That was like so a he, year or two ago. So he was like, okay, RJ Mitty, I'm just going to go ahead. And <laughs> well, speaking of Breaking Bad, another thing I have in our document is that I think probably one of the most prominent disabled actors in like American culture yeah. was RJ Mitty playing Walter White's son on Breaking Bad. And he also has cerebral palsy. I mean, he has it in real life and indeed on the show. And I remember finding out when I, you know, Googled everyone on the cast or whatever, that he actually was disabled. My mind was like blown because it was so anomalous for this to be the case because it just doesn't, Hollywood doesn't do that. And he's done some work and things since he hasn't had like a, you know, huge career. That's really the biggest thing he's done by a lot, but it's kind of crazy to think how prominent that depiction was. Because Breaking Bad was a big ratings hit, unlike a lot of the other big prestige TV shows. Like, no one actually watched Mad Men, whereas Breaking Bad was, like, heavily, heavily watched, as well as critically acclaimed. And um, I can't really think of an equivalent thing since, although maybe I'm just forgetting something obvious. And obviously, Professor X on X-Men is, like, the other big one, which not in terms of being played by a person who's paralyzed, but just like cultural ubiquity of someone who uses a wheelchair, right? Like how many kids saw an X-Men movie and were like, oh. But the thing that I was, the thing that occurred to me that I really wanted to recommend to people when I was sort of putting this list together was the, I think it's a 1946 movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, which can surely be rented anywhere. It, won the Oscar, I think, which is about soldiers coming home from World War II. And it was a massive, massive cultural phenomenon because, you know, everyone was dealing with the aftermath of the war and PTSD and et cetera, et cetera. And one of the characters, one of the actors was a veteran himself and had lost his hands in the war. He was not a professional actor. It's one of two non-professional actors who've ever won Oscars um, for acting. And a lot of the drama of the film revolves around the fact that he's kind of dealing with this and other people at home don't know how to cope with the fact that he's come back disabled. And um, it's really depressing to watch because Hollywood has made such little progress in the many decades since, but it's he's great in it. Mark Harris, who is the you know, film writer all over Twitter, uh, wrote a book called Five Came Back, which is about directors who worked for 
the government in the war, and he writes about yeah, that movie a lot. It's also a documentary it. series, isn't it? Yes. Um, and they show some footage of this movie in the third episode. He just goes into a lot of really interesting detail about that one. So that's a film that I would recommend for people who have sort of interest in this. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would recommend this movie despite our qualms, just because there's so little else out there. Thank you to Thomas for having us watch this. Even though we kind of complained about things in it, I was really glad to have seen it for all the reasons that we said. And I, again, can't believe I hadn't heard of it because Netflix just buries these things, which is really too well, bad. Well, let's see if our listeners move the dial on its uh, viewership yeah. numbers. <laughs> so uh, we hope that you check it out too. As ever, if you want us to watch a film of your choosing, you can have us do that on Patreon. We've just had... A number of requests come requests come in, so we're excited to do those in the coming months. Next week, we will be talking about I May Destroy You, which has been all the rage on TV in the US and the UK this summer. It's the best thing I've, on, I've seen on TV this year, for sure, so I'm really looking forward to watching that. And then sometime in the next few weeks, we will be doing uh, the first... The first installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. At long last. Long, long yes. awaited. I'm thinking maybe Labor Day weekend. That feels kind of appropriate. Not that anyone's going to be going anywhere in America for Labor Day weekend, but, you know, the spirit of a holiday weekend. Somewhere in that zone, we'll be doing Fellowship of the Ring. I'm very thrilled. One of my favorite movies of all time. The first one specifically. I think it's a masterpiece. So we'll be doing a commentary and also an episode. It's going to be so many hours of content about the Lord of the Rings, so all three oh of those gosh. movies. But oh uh, fortunately, all I did for the entirety of my middle school years was talk oh, and same. Like, and I've not rewatched these movies in many, many years, but the amount of just, like, information that has been stored in our minds, and probably many of yours, it's there, it's there. The foundation. Yeah, so um, that should be really fun. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much, as ever, for listening. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.